Welcome to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Laura Turner. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is a worldwide trailblazer, so much so that she was recently inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women in that very category. She's been recognised by the International Association of Women in Policing as the longest serving female police officer in the world. While there's been monumental change in society in her 50 years of service, her dedication to helping the victims of sexual assault and family violence has remained steadfast, as has as has her advocacy for the advancement of women in policing and, of course, in the broader community. It is my pleasure to welcome Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy to Great Australian Lives. How are you, Detective Senior Sergeant? Very good, thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. We, we, do, we haven't had a lot of police officers join us. It's always a fascinating world to step into and to hear your stories from a world that I think all uh, Victorians and Australians um, love to hear about. I would love to hear about your how it all began for you 50 years ago, um, you know, young Joy Murphy walking into the academy. Do you remember that day? Yes, I do. It was the 2nd of April 1973. I don't think I really understood what I was getting myself into when I joined the police force. I was full of uh, wonderful ideas about what policing was about. While some of it was correct, yeah, it led to a lot of different things that, you know, I'm actually proud to have been involved in. Absolutely. And we'll hear uh, a lot about those things later in the show. Uh, and, I, and I'm really excited to learn about all of your achievements. Um, but from that day, do you remember what what your biggest idea about policing was that, that didn't come to fruition? What were you most wrong about? That I could help everybody. I mean, that was my, my yeah. primary goal of joining the police force uh, when I went through this selection process. You know, I wanted to help people make a difference in their lives, people who uh, erred on the, side, uh, on the wrong side of the law. I wanted to help them to change. I also wanted to protect people from those that would do them harm. And whilst as a police officer, you do a lot of that, you can't actually do it in, on every instance because sometimes there are other factors that come into play that mean that you could only take it so far. And obviously, you know, we rely on the courts to also do their piece. Uh, and, you know, whilst by and large they do good, sometimes you think, hmm, I wish, you know, there'd been a better outcome. As a journalist, I've sat through many, many, many hours of court cases and, um, you know, sadly it does come down to a test of the law and, and that's where things can fall down, as you would well know, and justice doesn't feel like it's been done sometimes. Is that, am, I, am I correct in saying that? Yes, I, I would agree with that, yes. It must be so frustrating for you at times. Were you nervous that first day, Joy? Yes, very nervous. Um, yeah, I just had no idea what I was uh, getting into. I was in the first squad that went through the Glen Waverley uh, Police Academy. You know, a lot of the facilities that are there now weren't there then, so it was pretty raw in terms of a, a training facility. And uh, I'd not lived away from home prior to that, so that was um, 
you know, a new mm. thing as well. So nervous in a lot of ways. It is a beautiful building out there at Glen Waverley. I've been there. Um, am I correct in thinking you would have had to have been a young policewoman wearing a dress back then? They wouldn't have allowed slacks for female officers? Uh, that's correct. Uh, we had skirts, not dresses, but uh, women police uh, were required to wear a skirt, pantyhose <laughs> and yeah, it wasn't until a number of years later that uh, we were able to wear slacks. And you followed your brother into the job, didn't you? It was was he uh, and the rest of your family supportive of that decision to follow to follow him back then in the seventies? Yes, I think so. I certainly didn't um, meet with any objection about it. I, I'd tried a few different things before I joined the joined the police force, and I just hadn't found my niche, I suppose. And my brother had been in the police force for about three or four years at that stage, and it seemed interesting. So, yeah, I thought, well, I might as well give that a go and see how I do. And I remember at the time I'd been working somewhere and my boss said to me, look, you won't last 12 months. Well, I was determined to prove that person wrong, and I have. (laughs) Good on you. Those first few weeks and months at the academy, you mentioned you'd never lived away from home before. Um, I can imagine it would have been a real shock to the system. It's not living, not, not like living in a share house with friends, is it? Well, I've not lived in a share house, but yeah, look, it, 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 it was very different to what I expected. I don't know actually what I expected uh, it to be like, but certainly different from the experience that I had living at home and sometimes staying with relatives, but uh, you know, really hadn't gone anywhere much from home uh, as a young you know person mm. what was it like I mean I'm imagining sort of what you see in the movies of you know getting woken at the crack of dawn and polishing your boots I and mean, is that a total cliche can you describe a day in the life back then no that, that that's pretty similar to what it was uh, we had um, <laughs> uh, times that we had to be up uh, we had to do fatigue so you know, it could be, um, uh, you know, sweeping the corridor or cleaning the toilets. Um, you had breakfast uh, was made uh, down in the, the lunchroom and you had to be there between a particular time to get your breakfast or you missed out. And then you would mm-hmm. go back and uh, get changed. Sometimes you'd be going swimming as part of the, the training. So you'd have to get ready for, um, you know, that that event. And, uh, yeah, later on you would come back and and you'd have classroom. Mm. And am I right in thinking that back then um, female and male officers would have different um, physical training especially? Yes, that's that's true. Um, I remember when the the male officers did um, boxing and wrestling, the females would learn about what was the Community Welfare Services Act, which is what child protection mm. work under now, but it's a different name. Mm. So you were doing more of the theory, whereas the male officers were doing more of that physical um, physical training and physical side of the job. Did that frustrate you or were you, were you okay with that? Look, I didn't know any difference, so it, it didn't frustrate me. Um, uh, I would get involved in physical aspects of uh, training if I could. Uh, For example, with swimming, we were required to um, swim, if possible, to uh, bronze medallion uh, level. Um, And I was pretty much 
a non-swimmer before I went there. So um, mm-hmm. I tried really hard. No, I got to Bronze Cross, just one one level below Bronze Medellin. So I was pretty happy with that. Um, we also mm-hmm. every morning would uh, run around the academy, and uh, I always participated in that. And um, you know, with some uh, police women, you know, didn't particularly want to do that aspect. Yeah, that's fair enough. Do you remember your first, or I'm sure you do remember your first position after graduating? Um, what did that involve, that, that first job? Um, well, all police women then uh, went to Russell Street Women Police Division when they graduated, and from there, some were sent off to different areas like missing persons, um, criminal records, um, or other women police divisions. And we had some around. Um, the metropolitan area, Geelong, uh, Ngunnawading, uh, Flemington sort of come to mind. Uh, East Bentley, I think, mm. was another one. So um, the women would go to one of those units. Um, I stayed at Russell Street for a short time. Um, but one day I mucked up my roster and I, I was late for work. <laughs> and as a result of that, I got sent to front the inspector about it. Anyway, um, he must have liked what he saw because he uh, mm. straight away put me into a group called the A-District Support Group and there I got involved in uh, different types of investigations than what I would have uh, been doing at the mm. Women Police Division. So, you know, it was criminal investigations. We did crowd control. We, we did um, assisted search and rescue and that kind of thing. So that was a really interesting time. Gee, that's good. Just turning up late for work one day changed the course of your career. <laughs> yes, it, it, it did. Um, yeah, just lucky, I suppose. Yeah, how funny. I remember I, I turned up on the wrong day for the interview for my first ever university degree. Because of that, the professor laughed at me and told me later on that's part of the reason why I got in because he liked the fact that I was honest and there I was sitting there in the hallway on the wrong day. So there you go. <laughs> Those silly mistakes can change everything. That's right. <laughs> well, this is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. And of course, plenty more with Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy in just a moment. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy from Victoria Police, who was recently inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women as a trailblazer. She is the longest serving female police officer in the world. Incredible achievement. Uh, Joy is with me now. And it is a true joy that members used to hang up on you when you answered the phone at D24 because way back then they were so, so surprised to hear a woman's voice. They thought you had the wrong number. Yes, that's true. Um, I was at that time, I was at the A District Support Group and, and we did a lot of the uh, communications at emergency um, incidents. And so I was sent up there to see how it's done at D24 and and just learn the process. And I started off by answering the phone. So I had people just hang up on me because they weren't used (laughs) to having a female voice on the other end of the phone. 
And then when I got on the radio, the reaction was almost stunned silence at times when when <laughs> I came up on the air and, and answered a, a call that was coming from one of the units. Uh, eventually they softened to it and, and communicated, but... Yeah, it did take a little while for them to understand that there was a female voice at the other end. That's extraordinary. I mean, you just wouldn't no no officer coming through the academy or starting their career now would be able to even picture a female being a rarity. It's quite it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, look, I, I've had that happen to me a few times. Uh, when I joined, there was roughly two hundred police women in the organisation, and uh, I remember when I got promoted to sergeant, I came out to what was then called Region 4, but it's the same area that I'm in at the moment with a few name changes. And at that time, I was the only female sergeant in that whole uh, division, whereas now we have you know, several sergeants uh, who are female at almost every station. So, yes, back then, female police officers were a little bit of a novelty and we were breaking ground, sort of moving up the ranks and very different today to, to what it was then. Yeah. Now, you um, has been, as has been so well documented, um, have dedicated so much of your career to advocating for the victims of sexual assault and family violence. I'm sure that the first, and probably correct me if I'm wrong, every incident, but those first few incidents you attended to especially would have been quite impactful on you as a, as a young policewoman. Yes, look, I think, I think they were. I think I recognised fairly early on that whilst the police were doing a, an amazing job to try and investigate these very difficult crimes, and why I say it's difficult is that the vast majority of these offences are committed by somebody who knows that victim. There can often be um, resistance to an investigation. Um, sometimes the fourth story is not told to police, which can make it difficult for us to investigate because we have to get the whole truth. We can't side with one person or the other. We have to um, you know, present the full story to the courts if we go down that path. And the other thing is mm. that many victims of sexual assault don't actually want to go through an investigation or a, um, a, a court prosecution. I think primarily, uh, you know, whilst things have improved amazingly over the years, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. And particularly if it's somebody mm. who they know uh, had trust mm. in and have uh, you know had that trust abused was that something and i guess you answered this question earlier when you said that that initial uh, learning curve for you was that you couldn't help everyone but i i wonder whether that was something you had to come to terms with that in those early days, you know, did you want every victim to go forth with prosecution so you could get justice? Did, did you have to sort of come to terms with the fact that, um, you know, and, and I guess respect those victims who just, you know, couldn't go through that process and, and let it go? Yeah, that's true. It took a, a, probably a little while for me to understand that sometimes people just telling the police their story is all that they want. They just want somebody to support their view or their feelings that what was done to them was wrong. Mm. And so once I realised that, I found that the actual investigation process or the, or the job of dealing with sexual assault allegations a lot easier because I thought everybody's different in what they want, what helps them through the process. And some it's just to report it, but not to go down that uh, path of prosecution. 
and others yes. uh, might want the, the prosecution to, to actually happen. In my view, I always did the best I could to meet their needs. The only time that I think that you'd have to consider other things is where you thought that you know, the offending party might offend again. And then you'd obviously mm. discuss it with them and, and try to get them to understand that there's a need for the community that this investigation go a little bit further. Yeah, especially in the 70s, even the 80s, and, and I'm sure the 90s too, times have changed in terms of our cultural attitudes towards domestic violence, violence against women. So much would have changed for you in the way that the police force even um, deals with these crimes compared to now. Yes, that's true. Fairly early on in my career, I after having dealt with uh, sexual assault investigations, I realised that we, we needed to change a few things, particularly around supporting victims through the process. And um, I made some recommendations to, to my managers at the time, which I don't think you know got the justice that uh, I was looking for in terms of that. But I'm pretty persistent. Uh, if I see something needs to be done, uh, I, I just keep plugging away at it to try and achieve that. And, and now we've got uh, sockets, which are sexual offence investigation teams. Uh, and I was involved in the project to create those teams, which is exactly what I was looking for, a one-stop shop where uh, someone could complain to the police about what's happened to them and they don't have to speak to lots of different investigators. In the past, yeah. they would speak to a policewoman who might take a statement from them then it would be passed on to a, a detective at the criminal investigation branch. It was complex and, it, you know, it was cumbersome for a victim to have to keep saying the same thing all the time. Even the court process mm. now is a lot better for, for victims of sexual assault. So I feel I can claim a little bit of responsibility for that, uh, although it did take quite a few years before that actually turned around. Hats off to you. I'm sure there are many listeners uh, listening to the show tonight who hold Socket as an important place in their own lives for um, whatever reason. So that's some incredible work that you've helped do for the community. 1977, the Equal Opportunity Act uh, was a game changer and you were able to achieve a position in your local CI within a few years of graduating. And you were part of the inaugural crew to make up the Rape Squad. That, that's, that's an awful title, but uh, incredibly important work, Joy. Yeah, thank you. Was that the beginnings of Socket? I suppose it could be the beginnings uh, of Socket in that for the first time, Victoria Police uh, put together a, a specialised unit to deal with the victim management in, in relation to those sorts of offences. But as I said, mm. it was only the victim management. The actual investigation, prosecution of the offender still remained with the CI uh, in the divisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still advocated for the fact that I could see from a victim's point of view that if we could combine the victim management and the investigation process and have that person dealing with one detective, the advantage being is that you know, over a period of time when you take a statement, when you, the initial report, there's a lot of information that comes your way. The more people it involves means there's more gaps that that information could be lost. And I felt yeah. one detective, one investigation dealing with the one victim meant that mm. the, it was less likely for important information to be lost. And whilst it might not seem relevant at that point of time when you uh, receive that information, it could very well become the game changer 
you know, further down the investigation. Absolutely. So, you know, we've pretty much got that now, but it took a while to get to achieve. And I can imagine, um, Joy, that that all of these investigations that you did then and, and still do now uh, would um, bring with them a fair amount of, of trauma and stress for you as the investigator. Um, we hear about post-traumatic stress disorder for police officers now. Um, you would have faced so many different ways in which you confront and deal with um, that that trauma you experience on the job from the 70s right through till now. Yes, look, that's, um, that's correct. Look, everybody's different in how they deal with uh, the trauma, vicarious trauma that can be suffered from dealing with this sort of work. I don't feel that the work that I've dealt with has actually had a negative impact on me. I'm not saying that there weren't some cases that sort of hit home uh, a bit more Mm. than others, but I had family and friends around me that I could discuss how I was feeling. You know, I was fortunate, I suppose, that, uh, you know, I was able to get through some of these more difficult cases. That's not to say that others uh, haven't been severely impacted. It's it's a personal thing, I think. Yeah. Well, this is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And for more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Our guest tonight is Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy, who's been pioneering member of Victoria Police for nearly five decades. Plenty more with her in just a moment. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy from Victoria Police, trailblazer, smasher of glass ceilings and a woman who is truly dedicated to helping victims of sexual assault and family violence and furthering the role of women in the police force and beyond. She's an absolute asset to Victoria Police, of course, and we're very lucky to have her on the show tonight. Joy, I want to rewind a few decades. Tell me about your early years. Are you a Victorian through and through? Is this where you grew up? Yes, I was, I was born uh, in East Bentley in Melbourne. And uh, apart from a few address changes around the suburbs of Melbourne, lived most of my younger days in McLeod. Oh, yeah. Lovely. And were you, I know your brother ended up being a police officer. Was it a policing family as such? Was there dads and uncles and others who'd been police officers too? No. um, My brother was the first uh, in my family to join the police force. Um, My mother remarried um, probably about 20 years later and she married an old flame from when she was young who was a superintendent in the police force. So um, my brother first, then myself, and then my mother remarried um, a police officer. And then I had a cousin who joined the police force as well. Oh, yeah. So it's in the family in a way. Um, How would you describe your childhood? Was it um, sort of the idyllic, I guess McLeod would have been country then, was it? Yes, we had bushfires in in McLeod. Our street, no made roads. Yeah, it was fairly uh, rural, I suppose, uh, at that time. Were you an active kid, sporty, um, and did you love school? Uh, Very active. Used to run around, go swimming in in summertime, always down at the local pool from virtually dawn to dusk. (laughs) My brother was only two years older than me, so 
If he was playing footy across the road or something, I would go and kick the football with him. The other things that we tended to do in our childhood, my grandfather had a farm up at Dookie, which is near Shepparton, and we'd go up to his farm uh, and spend a lot of time there. Yeah, I I ran my legs off, actually. (laughs) Good to hear that um, good Aussie upbringing. You mentioned you had a few different careers before policing. Yes, I started off in ladies' hairdressing. I went to a hairdressing college and then worked as a ladies' hairdresser for a while, but I didn't like the smell of perm solution, actually. It kind of turned me (laughs) off. And standing on your feet all day... I thought, no, um, I think I need to do something else. And then I um, I got a job working as a dispatcher for a taxi company, so on the radio. And were they um, comfortable with ha- having a female voice on the radio? Yes, most of the dispatchers at the taxi company um, were female. After that, I joined the police force. And you, in, in your many years as a police officer, you really, you've pushed for a change in a lot of areas, one of those being um, advocating for the right for part-time policing roles. Why was it so important for you to push for that? Look, I, I had... Uh, where I was working at the time, which was at um, Greensboro Community Policing Squad, I had a number of women um, who wanted to start families. You know, I'd lost one or two who'd resigned because we didn't have part-time and others went to sort of non-operational areas like D24 and so forth. And then Victoria Police introduced uh, part-time policing, but it was in non-operational areas such as Mm. D24, missing persons, going uh, back to sort of criminal records and so forth. So I was losing really good people and I wanted to keep them in the area that I was in. So I advocated and and asked if I could at least trial part-time member in my area of community policing at that stage. And I did, and and it was amazing, and it Mm. worked really well. But used to get a lot of the uh, objections from people saying, oh, it won't work, it'd be too hard to roster, they won't be there tomorrow, you know, when you need them. But I I pushed ahead anyway because I thought, well, you know, they could be at court all day tomorrow, so they won't be in the office. Could be on a day off. You know, we work shift work, so we're not Monday to Friday business hours. So... I argued against it and kept throwing up that, you know, that was a ridiculous reason not to have people in operational areas working part-time. And eventually it occurred. So I feel I've had a hand in changing that over the years as well. Yeah, well, a good friend of mine is um, now a part-time police officer after having children. So I'll thank you on her behalf <laughs> for letting her continue to have a career. Now, your um, current role is the Northwest Metro Division 5 Sex Offender Registry, or you manage that registry administration um, yes. and community engagement team. That offender registry, so important to community safety, isn't it? It is. Um you know, by managing uh, the registered sex offenders appropriately, reducing the risk of them re-offending. We monitor them closely. Um, the minute we see something, you know, that might increase their risk of offending, you know, we go and see them. We can take out uh, prohibition orders, for example, if their offending is motiva- motivated by alcohol or drugs, and we get some information that suggests that they're 
consuming drugs or alcohol, we'll do something about it so that we can reduce that risk. You know, whilst we're not behind them 24-7, we're not far away. Mm. It's a polarising issue, isn't it, Joy, um, to have them in the community as opposed to what we might hear on, you know, some talkback radio every now and then that they should all be locked up, never to be let go. Um, there's a lot of schools of thought about the treatment of those who have been through, um, you know, the court and and jail process but need treatment on the other end? Look, I think the vast majority of people who've made fairly unwise choices, uh, are they a risk to the community? That's a question I ask myself. There's some definitely, you can see by the history of offending that they are a risk to the community and they get a lot more attention than others that might not be a risk uh, or perceived as as much of a risk as uh, you know more serious offenders. So we we grade them in terms of um, you know serious risk or not. This is done by a professional team at the sex offender register in town. Those that are considered medium or high, we, we closely monitor them. The ones that are low, we sporadically monitor them. But after a while, you do get to understand uh, what some of the precipitators are for these people offending and we keep an eye on it and if we get intel that suggests that their risk has increased we will do something about it and might be paying them a visit doing some observations of them or taking out prohibition orders. And Joy what is the hardest thing the biggest hurdle you have to face in this role at the moment? There's misunderstanding from some police not not all but some police as to the importance of our role Whilst I understand that uh, sex offenders need to be managed, we do a lot of our work is in the office, phone calls, emails, Mm. uh, doing checks and so forth. And then we do actually go out and, and do visits and so forth. I think some police don't really understand what we do and mm. to try and educate them. We, I mean, we do our best to do that. If we get uh, a notification from somewhere uh, that uh, they've checked a registered sex offender, we straight away send them an email and ask what were the circumstances, were they in a car, were they, who were they with and what were they dressed in. Mm. And we ask this information in case there's a sexual offence that happens in that near mm. vicinity, you know, it may be only a partial description of a car or a partial description of a person. So it helps us to keep mm. on track to monitor them, but also to uh, assist investigators investigating a new offence. We do our best to educate and we are doing it and we're achieving a lot of good things, but you know, probably we could do a bit more, I would think. Having everyone on board. Do you think our um, understanding of how to manage and treat and even rehabilitate sex offenders has changed over the years as it evolved. Can you rehabilitate them? Some yes and some no, I think. As I said uh, earlier that some people who are on the sex offender register, I look at their history of offending and and they may have committed one offence. For example, when they were 18, they might have uh, had a relationship with someone underage And then Mm. that person's gone on to get married, have his own family and remain in employment and not re-offend. I I would describe that person as perhaps someone who's made a poor judgment at the age of 18, which we know that Mm. some 18-year-olds are not as mature as others. And some of the sex offenders that might fit into that type of scenario, that they usually end up on the lower end of the Mm. scale in terms of Mm. risk. But 
whether they need to be on the sex offender register, I don't know. That's a decision that a court will make. There's certainly people that you know, are much more of a risk and they're the ones that we need to be concentrating on. So mm. it can be a little bit frustrating at times that we're monitoring people that we don't think are going to offend. I would rather spend that time monitoring uh, those that are at a higher risk of doing that. What's the ratio of men to women on the register? We certainly have women on the register, but the, there wouldn't be all that many in the area that I cover. We have nearly 300 registered sex offenders and, and probably about uh, four four women mm. at any given time. Mm. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au and plenty more with Detective Sergeant Joy Murphy in just a moment. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our guest tonight is Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy from Victoria Police, whose motto is work hard, talk loudly, and most of all, believe in yourself and don't be put off because there will always be people who just don't want some things to happen. Joy, um, pretty good motto. Do you still stand by that? Absolutely. I've got a, um, a little sign in my office that says real leaders uh, ordinary people with extraordinary de- determination, and I live by that. I can see exactly where you're coming from with that. And that there are people in the world who are just just uncomfortable with with change, um, and and sort of confronting what's wrong with society, aren't there? Yes, uh, absolutely. And and it's not necessarily about the fact that things were bit being done wrong at the time that uh, you know those processes evolved. They were probably good processes and and were suitable at the time. But I think we've always got to be thinking uh, how we can improve the service that we provide. As we've talked about in the show, Joy, you were very passionate about um, helping people get through incidents of family violence. Um, Are you comfortable with us using the term family violence or that old term domestic violence? Um, it's, it's, It's a debatable topic, isn't it, whether violence is just violence? Yes, look, another term that's used is intimate partner violence and and Mm. predominantly that's because most of what we call family violence, uh, the parties are known to each other, possibly uh, in a relationship, either, you know, a parent, um, a partner or an ex-partner or even, you know, extended family. So that's the majority of cases that we deal with. So I'm not sure I can think of a better you know, term to describe what we do. And I think it needs to be separated from the random type of violence that happens in the street where somebody walks up to someone else and just hits them and you know, has never met mm. them before. That's a, another category of violence altogether and shouldn't be included in the statistical information mm. around family violence Mm. because it's totally different. Yeah, you make a very good point. Random versus um, what can be, I guess, entrenched and very familiar to some people. Um, 47 years in the job. Do you dream of retirement, Joy, or is there still too much to do for you? Um, Some days I dream of retirement. (laughs) Um, But other days, yeah, I'm motivated to keep going. I, I would like to get to 50 years just as a seems yep. like a good number 
but whether I do or I don't, that's another thing. You know, I've had some health issues yeah. years ago, um, which I got through. Yes. But it's kind of that. one day at a time, really. And and speaking of your days at a time, do you have hobbies outside of police work? What do we find Joy doing on her days off? Uh, generally speaking, um, I'm a bit of a homebody. So I love gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love fixing things. Pretty good at that, actually, yeah. if you've got anything you need fixing. Oh, where do you live? Look, I, used- <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to play sport, but... Uh, yeah, basketball. I was passionate basketballer in the days gone by, and I used to do um, long distance running. You know, I'd run in uh, half marathons mm. and things like that. So I used yep. to keep very fit. But then, twenty years ago, I I got cancer and went through mm. uh, pretty uh, radical type of treatment for that. And yeah, my sporting days were over after that. But look, mm. I, I enjoy going out for lunch with friends and family. Um, I enjoy, as I said, doing things at home and and helping my uh, two boys. Beautiful. Well, Joy, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and and, and a great learning experience, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy, the longest-serving female police officer in the world, and she is an asset to Victoria Police at the moment. We thank her for being with us. And if you've enjoyed our chat with Joy Murphy tonight and you'd like to share it with a friend, of course, subscribe to the Great Australian Lives podcast. And of course, we have raised some pretty in-depth issues uh, on our show tonight. So if you're listening and do need someone to talk to, of course, call 1-800-RESPECT. That is the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service. That number again, 1-800-737-732. And this is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with With Laura Turner Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives.